Well, I was reminded after, um, after what I shared last week that Paul wrote to his spiritual son Timothy, as in 1 Timothy, and, and told him, do the work of an evangelist. Now, Timothy, it wasn't like Timothy forgot that the whole purpose of the kingdom of heaven is to advance, to bring more people to a saving knowledge of Christ, to come into the kingdom of heaven. But his ministry was mainly about leading the apostolic center that was Ephesus, which is what it was. It, was more, it wasn't just a local church. All of Asia heard the word of the Lord because of what God did in that city in the church that Paul established. So Timothy's there. He's leading this apostolic work. We don't know what the number was or you know, how big that work had become. But Paul wrote to him, it was in the middle of persecution. It was in the middle of hard times for not only Jews, but Christians. And, and the, the war was heading toward Israel at the time of this letter. And it was a, a really tumultuous season of history. Volcanoes were erupting. There were earthquakes. It was everything Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 was coming to pass. And Paul wrote to him, and, and of all the things that he exhorted him, this one really just leaped off the page at me again. He said, do the work of an evangelist. And, and sometimes we're in need of a reminder, aren't we? We're going about our kingdom ministry. We're going about life and, and the abundant life that Christ has given us. We're loving people. We are extending ourselves to those in need around us. And, and sometimes we even remember to mention Jesus while we're at it. <laughs> but, but I feel like God's saying to us again, as he exhorted his disciples, lift up your eyes and look to the fields for the white unto harvest. That there are certain times and seasons where God says, I am emphasizing something right now. This is a season for evangelism. I got one amen so far. We'll see how we do in the next little while. It's a season for reaching out. <laughs> it might have been two voices blended as one. It's a time for reaching out, not just with love and compassion, not just with meeting the needs and you know, being a good friend and a good neighbor. I, I believe that all of us have the same mindset that at the very least, all Christians ought to be doing that. We should be the best citizens of any nation. We should be the best neighbors anybody ever had. We should be the kind of people that when we move away, what's said about us 10 years down the road is, oh man, I miss them, I wish they'd come back. That's being a, like a good neighbor. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> That's who we ought to be. A good neighbor like the good Samaritan was a good neighbor, right? When they asked him, who's our neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself? Okay, who's our neighbor? Well, whoever it is that comes across the guy in need, that's your neighbor. You come across somebody lying in his own blood on the side of a road, probably should stop and help him and not walk by because you're too busy. That's a neighbor. So yeah, we ought to be doing all those things, but there's a necessity, and I, wanna, uh, I feel like God wants us to kind of sit in this for a little bit, for a season, and remember, it's still gotta come back to the name of Jesus. All ministry. So the, the easiest level where, where we could fall back into, and this is what happened with the Salvation Army, for example. You know, the name Salvation Army meant exactly what we know salvation to mean. It wasn't just saving your used clothes so somebody could buy them and run soup kitchens, although that's all good ministry. It was an army raised up, a booth raised it up to go and reach the lost, to go and bring Christ to the poor of London. And that's why all those good works have always been attached to that ministry. But it wasn't just good works for good works sake. We have the Department of Health and Human Services here in the United States, the most developed, for all its dysfunction, the best developed agency to take care of people that's ever existed in history. As far as the money that's involved, as far as the number of people that are, uh, there is not really a need for anybody in the United States to live as a homeless, impoverished person. There are enough resources just through the government to take care of all those needs. So when we find ourselves as a church only doing the things we could have done without Christ, we're missing it. So if we, if all the things that we do, whether as a local church, capital C church, as individuals, if everything that we can do could be done without an anointing, we're missing it. There is, there is a certain quality to ministry, even giving a cup of cold water to somebody. There's a quality in that that ought to bring the anointing of Jesus Christ with it. 
At the next level of ministry then is what we would call the full gospel, where there are in fact miracles happening. There are miracles of healing as we just, as the Lord was just moving in, which by the way, I just wanna exhort you to respond when the Lord does that. And if you're new to all of this, the tingling and the sensation and all of that, um, as the Lord speaks to some in visions, speaks to some by words kind of bubbling up and, and you just feel like you know what words to say, the gift of healing and the gift of prophecy sometimes comes with a physical sensation to it. And it's a way of the God speaking specifically to get your attention so that you know it's time to do something with this. And it's kind of getting our attention enough so that we go and reach out and minister with it instead of going, well, that was kind of weird. And then you go home and have your, you know, your chicken soup for lunch. All right, so that's, that's what that's all about, but that we respond to it. So there's this next level of ministry, which I believe the whole church, not just like the, whatever you want to call us, the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, the full gospel movement. I'm so movemented out. I just want to be uh, the Christian movement. As it was 2,000 years ago, so it shall always be. If it's in here, it ought to be expressed out there. It's, that's our simple theology of why we believe in miracles and God doing the supernatural today, because it's in here and we love the word that's been recorded, the testimony's been recorded, and this was just the warm-up act, by the way. So, but, but here's the other thing that can happen then. We can work miracles we can have healing, we can have, you know, all kinds of things happen, but the goal of it, the point of it, is this is an introduction to Jesus meeting you in your place of need. If, if the gospel goes, if all, all there are are the benefits of the gospel, I would suggest, and this is a weakness of the Western gospel as it's often presented, here are all the benefits that God has for you. Don't forget them, Psalm 103. Here's all the benefits but we don't also endeavor to remind everybody it's the Lord Jesus who healed you right now. And he's not just after your healed body, but he wants your whole life to be made whole. And it's a simple thing of turning your heart, repenting, turn toward him now and live your life toward him and watch how he restores so much more than your broken leg or your, your, you know, your heart or whatever it is that, that needs certain, all of those things. He wants so much more that's the full, go full gospel doesn't just mean the signs and wonders. It means the word of salvation. I'm gonna share more about that in the weeks ahead, but today I wanna remind us that it's all of our ministry. There's not a select few. We got this idea somewhere along the way, I think it was as the gifts were getting restored to the church, that we have this office of evangelist. Those are the ones who do the evangelism. Thank you, Billy Graham. Thank you, you know, name your favorite evangelist. Run our bunkie. Thank you for going and doing the work. We'll, you, you catch them, we'll clean them, and we'll, we'll disciple them. But the ministry is for all of us. Amen. All of us. So when Jesus rose from the dead, some of his last words to his apostles, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, go make disciples. Go make disciples. All of us, regardless of what other things we do in life to put bread on the table and to fulfill our life's call, this is like the umbrella that covers it all, that we're sent to go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and here it is, teaching them to observe whatever I commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So if Jesus was called to do it, the apostles were called to do it, and if the apostles were called to do it, then so are we. Because if their commission was teach them to do whatever I commanded you, if he told the apostles, go and heal the sick. I mean, read the sending of the 12 or the sending of the 70, all the things that they were, heal the lame, cure the blind, open, you know, uh, set free the demonic, uh, do all of those things. We're called to do all of that stuff and to bring that good news. None of us is excused. None of us is like support staff. All of us at some points in our lives will be on the front lines face to face with somebody who is ripe and ready to be born again into the kingdom of heaven. You all get to be spiritual midwives. That's an uncomfortable picture if you've been around childbirth, but thankfully, well, I was about to say, thankfully, spiritual birth is a little bit cleaner, but it gets really messy a lot of time, doesn't it? Some of us, me included, were a really messy delivery. 
And it does get messy, a different kind of messy, but we're all called into it. None of us gets to take a back seat. Bringing good news is not for a select few, it's for all of us. All of us have good news, all of us have been the recipient of good news, and the spirit of it is exactly what we were just singing and, and worshiping with the Lord. We've got this amazing good news on the inside of us. We've all had opportunity to experience it, and out of pure joy and overflow for, wow, why would anybody want to live without what I now have in Christ? Consistent prayer that I make in my life is, Lord, remind me what it was like to be without hope, without Christ. Never let me forget what it felt like to have no God in my life so that I'll never stray and wander away from you. I wanna remember that day. And out of that then comes this desire that everybody else will have what we have. That's the heart behind all evangelism. So turn in your Bible to Isaiah 61. If you have one, actually turn there. Even though the words are up on the screen. It's just a good habit to have a Bible that you open up. And I know a lot of us use our phone and that's all right. I'm trusting you that you're not texting right now. You're looking at your Bible and that's fine. I, I love you and I trust you. Maybe you're taking notes like I do on your phone. That's all good too. But the text can wait. Pretend you're driving right now. Don't text. It can wait. Isaiah 61 was something that Jesus understood. He came of age and he understood, I, am now, I realize something about myself now. I'm the embodiment of the promise of God. At 12 years old, as bar mitzvah, when he was presented at the temple, um, he, he knew who his father was. And when he came to read at the synagogue, he opened it up and he said, Isaiah 61, that's me. So Jesus told the apostles, as the father sent me, so I send you. Meaning, Everything that I did, guys, you've been watching me for three and a half years. You saw how I was sent from a comfortable, beautiful, heavenly place to get deep in the muck and mire of human existence, to experience and be tempted in all points just like you, and, and, uh, but uh, without sin. But I'm gonna experience life like you experience it. I'm not gonna be afraid to hang out with sinners even if it ruins my reputation. I'll be known as a drunk and a glutton because I hang out with drunks and gluttons. Not for the sake of blending in with them, right? For the sake of showing them a better way. But I'm not afraid to be numbered among you. I'm not afraid to smell like you. I'm not afraid to have the Pharisees see me with you maybe even having a glass, one glass with you, not the drunkenness, I don't wanna to step too deep in that one. But I can get in your world without it getting on me. In the world, not of the world, that's who we are. Is Christ in you stronger than any temptation that you're gonna find as you get in there in the lives of, of the broken? Sometimes a rhetorical question's okay to say, well, was that a yes or no? I forgot how I said it. <laughs> Christ in you is stronger than any spirit. It's not gonna get on you. You got Christ in you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So don't be afraid to get involved in the lives of those even if they're trapped in all kinds of crazy stuff. It's not gonna, that's who we are. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And then he told the apostles, teaching them to do whatever I commanded you. So now we're back up to if Jesus did it, we should be doing it. If Jesus did it, it's ours to do also. Everything, except getting crucified on a cross and dying for the sins of the world. We get a pass on that one. That's how we got into this thing. We're not gonna be crucified for anybody. There may be martyrs. That's rare these days in the Western world, but there may be martyrs again, but it's not dying for the world. That's the part we get a pass on. So. Jesus read this, and I wanna break it down and, and just start this thing about considering now, lift, this is like lift up our eyes and look to the fields. Begin to, uh, I'm, I'm exhorting us and, and prophetically exhorting, just be awake and alert and aware for opportunities. Be looking for setups, divine appointments, setups. Finding people that God's been working on. If we're gonna do as Jesus did, here was his bottom line, like motto for life. I only do what I see the Father doing. So what does that mean? Not living with an awareness just of the lost, broken things around us, but living so aware of the Father that we see what he sees as we look at people. 
that as we come across that person and we notice their countenance is down or we see that person and they're obviously just broken and destitute that we don't just walk by but we say, Father, what are you up to in that person's life and how can I participate in what you're doing? That, that's where all evangelism begins. Because uh, I'll tell you, uh, uh, this might even be worth a show of hands. How many of you have had seasons in your life, maybe you're in one now, where you've shared Christ with so many people, you haven't seen that many people come to Christ after sharing, and you've grown a little weary and well-doing with that? I'm st- I'll raise my, I don't care. I'm, how do you think I got this series? It is, it gets tiresome. You share Christ over and over again, maybe even with the same person, and it gets discouraging. I I love one of my favorite messages, and I urge you all to listen to it. It's in the realm of healing, but it's a Randy Clark message. Randy Clark's head of Global Awakening, powerful and severely humble man of God. I don't care, forget whatever you read about him. I've met the man, I've had dinner with the man. He is one of the humblest people I've ever met. And yet his ministry is responsible for the healing of millions because he's learned the art of multiplying himself with teams that go all around the world. And uh, he shared a great message that he got from early on in his healing ministry called the agony of defeat. I've recommended it to you before. Some of you are new, so I'm recommending it again. And it's specifically about the the gift of healing and his ministry of healing, but it, it, it applies to everything that we do, the fullness of the gospel, which includes healing the fullness of the gospel, that he he tells a story about how he prayed for a hundred people before he saw the first even inkling of a healing. The first person he prayed for died that night. Come on, that's funny, you can laugh at that. I mean, they're with Jesus, it's all right. And he's overcome it, obviously. But so, the, the point is, I paused on that, the point is that we don't allow our experience to prevent us from obeying the word. That's what's called an experiential theology. It means my experience trumps what the word says. That's, that, that means that we now believe that we're wiser than God. We now recreate Christ, the gospel, after our image and our experiences, if we know better than the ones who passed Jesus on to us, who knew him personally. Those that believe that there are no gifts for today, I love them, I'm friends with them. If they're watching, I I still love you, but I got the mic, so I got to say this. (laughs) But almost everyone that I've talked to who believes that healing is not for today, when they explain why, there's always a story about how it didn't happen when they prayed they lost somebody that they loved They prayed, somebody had cancer, they prayed and prayed, they fasted and prayed, the prayer warriors fasted and prayed, and they died anyway. And in discouragement, they threw aside the word of God, they eliminated some portions of scripture, including all the things Jesus told the apostles to do, and they redesigned a theology to make them feel safe. I'll just do what I can do. And and they may not say it out loud, but it's I don't trust Jesus and so I'm gonna do whatever I can do without Jesus, for Jesus. Be careful, be really careful not to let life experience make you change who God actually is in your heart and mind. Because here's who he really is. Because when God became manifest in the flesh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We have a discipleship curriculum, we're kind of tweaking it, finalizing it, and we'll have it ready again soon. Um, But uh, there's this uh, thing, I'll I'll ask new believers in a class, how many of you, when you think of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the one that you're most uh, afraid of? And for some, it's Holy Spirit, because that feels a little weird and out of control and unpredictable, which is accurate. But for most people, our answer is, well, God the Father, the Lord God Almighty, the one whose presence makes the room tremble, the great and terrible Oz behind the curtain. And that's the picture that many people have of God the Father. And if I'll ask, well, which portion of the Godhead do you feel the most comfortable with? Almost two of one, it's Jesus. For a new believer, Jesus. Why? He's relatable, he seems kind. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, wait till you read the Gospels. 
<laughs> but anyway, he just seems like, you know, I can, I can hang with him. And, he, and, and that was the point. That was the exact purpose of God becoming flesh so he could live among us and be as one of us. But, but Jesus wanted to make sure it was clear. If you've seen me, this is what God's like. This is what the Father looks like. What's the anointing then? What's the purpose of Jesus? Why is he and who is he and how does his body represent him today? Well, here it is. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah 61, because the Lord has anointed me. I wanna pause right there for a second. We're gonna do this in a few minutes. We're gonna break bread and we're gonna do this and prophesy this over each other. And we're gonna say the spirit of the Lord God is upon you because the Lord God has anointed you. So you can say that about yourself. How many of you have Christ in you? All right, that's close. You know what I'm, uh, well, I am gonna preach the gospel one week. Just flat out as if you're unbelievers. I feel like God wants me to do that. Um, if Christ is in you, then the spirit of the Lord God's not just upon you, it is in you. Christ in you literally means Christ means the anointed one. The anointing is in you. The anointing is in me. It's there. It's there for us to steward. It's there for us to use or it's there for us to ignore and go back to life as usual as if we don't have the God of heaven and earth living on the inside of us in a way that is eager to find ways out. So the spirit of God is upon us because the Lord's anointed us. Nothing that we do acts of compassion, acts of love, acts of service, whatever we do to demonstrate love out there in the world or to one another, none of it is gonna have any eternal impact unless we have an anointing inside of us. Do you know that in the tabernacle of old, every single item in that tabernacle was anointed, right down to the utensils used to clean up the ashes out of the altar of bronze? Everything was anointed. Every Levite was anointed, whether their job was to clean up the ashes and take them out at the end of the day. Everything was anointed. Everything that you do, saint of God, is anointed. Whatever you put your hands to, Jesus is doing that because you are his body. We are the body of Christ. So if we're doing it, Jesus is doing it. So all evangelism begins with an awareness of, I have Christ in me right now. These words that I'm about to say are far more than whatever my mind can come up with. They have power attached to them. They have the capacity to do something and have an impact on the life that I'm speaking to right now. This is more, I'm, I'm reminding us of, I know you all know this already, but it's an act of faith to believe that when we're ministering to somebody, there is an anointing in our words. Now what they do with that will be their responsibility. I think I, I touched on that a bit last week. I won't go back into that. What they do with it, it, it's seed, right? We're indiscriminate seed sowers. We're not gonna judge whether you're hard soil, thorny soil, stony soil, or good soil. We're just gonna scatter the seed because it's never gonna run out. We have an inexhaustible supply of seed, and so we can be indiscriminate sowers of seed. We don't need to hold back because we don't think somebody's gonna receive it. So everything we have has an anointing on it. What's the anointing for? To bring good news to the afflicted. Notice it's not just to preach good news, and that's an accurate translation. Not just to talk about good news. The gospel message is not just, I mean, you think, I mean, I heard Billy Graham preach. I didn't come to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade, but I went to help at some after I got saved. So I got to experience him in the Coliseum on Long Island where the Islanders play. And the place was packed as all of his rallies were and, or outreaches were. And of course, people were streaming to the altar at the end of it. And I, you know, I was, it was the first time I'd ever heard him. And I'll tell you, it was the simplest gospel message you've ever heard. It felt like, that, I mean, honestly, this is my re reaction. That's it? That, that's all you got? I mean, I thought it would be more eloquent. I thought it would be, the, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting. I was still new in Christ. But when he finished and said, if you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior tonight, come on down. Whoosh! All the eyes are full. The whole front was filled. Why? Because he didn't just preach good news. He brought it. There's a quality of what Christ in us brings to the table where we're not just talking about it, we're not just telling people about something that we haven't experienced. We're telling people about a thing that we, we live, 
a thing that we breathe, a thing that's on the inside of us. We bring good news. So there, there is going to be something that will happen as a result of what we shared. Who are we bringing it to? To the afflicted. Can I set you free of something? Yeah. Not everybody is going to get saved. I'm not saying that to be a downer. Just believe what Jesus said. Many are called, but few are chosen. He said that. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. That was Jesus. Argue with him. I'm just quoting him. I'm just the messenger. Not everybody that we talk to is going to get saved. Not everybody who, uh, our job, our, our role when it comes to evangelism is to work toward bringing somebody face to face with Jesus. That's our role. To give them an encounter with him through expressed love, through persistent love maybe, or through words that just have an anointing on them. Yeah, there are some times, and this is how it happened for me, somebody said something in a certain way and it's like all of the arguments fell to the ground that I had about why I shouldn't be a Christian. And all I, I couldn't wait to experience this father the guy was talking about. And he said the right word. Sometimes it's that. But to the afflicted means to somebody who has had life humble them. Some, some translations have it, to bring good news to the humble or good news to the poor. That's the King James translation of it. It doesn't mean physically impoverished, although that many times is the result of all the other kinds of poverty. Poverty is a spirit it, it, that results in, yeah, I never have money, I never have the means to get by, but poverty in itself is just a symptom of something much deeper for the most part. Now there's some who become impoverished because life just wrecks them. Widows, orphans, you know, people that, that have, you got, um, genuinely like you can't work anymore because you had an accident or something. Poverty comes in many forms, but that's not what this word means. Afflicted means somebody who has come to the place where they are now desperate for God. This is the Holy Spirit's work. This is what we call a prevenient grace. That's a fancy theological term, no extra cost. That was a whole seminary class. I just saved you right there like that. It means that God's been working on them, that God's been opening their eyes to the fact that the way that they've been living, it's not working, like he's doctor filled them. How's that working for you? And the Holy Spirit's already been doing that. And when we, by the time we get on the scene to bring good news to them, they've come to a place where they're ready to have hope. They need an answer for questions that they have. That's why we're exhorted by, by uh, James, always be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within you. Because you're gonna come across people that are desperate for answers. I wanna just write right here right now real quick. Make sure that you can share your testimony. Find a way that you can share your testimony. I had the Liberia team do this last week. Share your testimony in five minutes or left. How Christ first met you, how it was that he changed you. Here's a testimony. I was like this, then came Christ, and now I'm like this. Or as Mary Magdalene and the Chosen put it, I was once one way, and now I'm another. And what was the rest of it? Dang it, when you try to quote, the difference, the difference was Jesus. That's a testimony. Figure out how to do that in five minutes or less. Nobody wrote that down. You're gonna remember that? Because you're gonna have, I'm telling you, you're gonna have opportunities to do this. You gotta be ready for that moment. Because somebody's life hangs in the balance. Look, the, the gospel's not a matter of heaven or hell. The gospel's a matter of life or death. That, that's what the bottom line is. Heaven or hell, you can use those terms if you want, but, but the full reality of it, it's a matter of life or death. So I used to be a lifeguard. If I see somebody who's out in the water and they're drowning, I'm gonna go get them. I'll, I'll put myself at risk to rescue somebody that's obviously about to die. That, that's kind of a, a love-driven mindset when it comes to evangelism that ought to propel us to actually act on what it is that we've got. So, to bring good news to the afflicted. We are not responsible for the response. We're not responsible for whether somebody afterward, we're not a better evangelist because we have more notches in our belt. I'm impressed too. I'm impressed, I've got friends who've led like dozens of people to Christ. 
And it's easy for that, like they're in the middle of a conversation and next thing you know, Jesus is in that conversation. Like they're talking about Jesus with, with you know, pagan tattoos on the face and the whole thing. And somehow Jesus comes into the conversation. They're masters at it. And they're like, just lay hands on me or show me how to do that. I, I wish I could do it like you do. And there is a certain grace on some people. We're not excused from it just because we're not as good as some others are at it. But every one of us has an opportunity and will have opportunity to meet somebody when, as we say, they hit rock bottom and they got no place left to look but up. That's the afflicted. That's who the good news was for. That's why Jesus, you don't really often see him hanging out in the Pharisees' houses and in the wealthy houses and all of that. You almost always see him hanging around lepers and people that are poor and needy because they're more likely to be at rock bottom. When you got everything you ever, your heart ever wanted, and you, you know, you got money in the bank and you have all your needs met, you're not usually at that rock bottom place in life. You can get there, and I've met some millionaires. I met, actually, I met a billionaire woman who is the saddest person I still to this day I've ever met in my life. Lived in a 30-room mansion right on the North Shore in uh, Manchester by the sea. Gorgeous house. I mean, I don't know, it was built in the early 1800s by some sea captain. Gorgeous turrets in the top, mahogany. I mean, she had a suit of armor in the hallway. I've never been in a house that actually had a suit of armor in it. And she did, and, and had all this rare art. We carried one case. My buddy and I were carrying it out, and she walked by, she said, be careful with that. That was on the Santa Maria. <laughs> and it was like that. But she didn't come out of bed until two. She was drug addicted and she was the saddest human being I've ever met, but she had it all. She'd never driven a car in her life, and she was absolutely destitute. So yeah, Rich can get to that place, and oh, I was hoping that that would be her day. It wasn't, but you can get there, but for the most part, it's people who have just had life wreck them. The kind of people that most of us often treat as scenery and walk right by. They work at the grocery store, they're walking on the street, they're, they're working at Walmart, wherever it is, you know, I'm not, I, I shouldn't have named any examples because I, I think you can, that, that's a great, if that's what you love doing, then do it. It's your career. But if it's because I'm too, I'm too broken to do my dream in life, then it's a problem and we're the solution. Well, we carry the solution. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted we have a grace on us. You notice this? So we got the afflicted, now we got the brokenhearted. Right, you, you get in a, you know, there's a common theme throughout this passage. There's finding people that are just absolutely jacked up by life. Bind up the brokenhearted. So stop the bleeding, tend to the wounds, whether they're emotional, physical, or both. And, and that's the anointing that we carry. Bind up the brokenhearted. Look for them and have compassion. Most common phrase used when describing Jesus' motives for healing people, it'll say, moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand to heal. That there is a, a, like a reawakening to love. So if your love has grown cold, I find this often, I, I hang around a lot of people who work with the homeless and with uh, drug addicted and so on, and, and, uh, and I did before, I was a pastor too back in Boston. And the most common thing that can happen if we're not careful is that our love just kind of gets cold, we get numb toward it. I found it happening to me when I worked in South Boston with street kids in the Boys and Girls Club, that uh, there were so many of them that were physically abused. And I mean, I called children and youth, I was on the phone with them once a month at least, to file on somebody. And there's this cute, adorable little blue-eyed blonde Irish girl, six years old, with gigantic bruise on the side of her face one day, and I didn't cry. And I realized something's wrong. I'm getting numb to this. So I went to my pastor, Phil, and I asked, could you pray for me? Because I'm seeing it so often now. I'm not even moved anymore by the sight of a girl with a bruise on her face from her father's drunken rage. And, and we need that, we, that's why there's an anointing to this thing. That's why there's a need for fresh anointing and a continued outpouring of the Spirit. If our heart's no longer moved with compassion, then I urge you, get on your face, cry out to God, and get restored in that place of compassion, because that's normal, it is not normal not to be moved with compassion for the brokenhearted that are around us. So. Whatever it is, that's, that's why we have times. Get on your face, cry out to God. What's next? To proclaim liberty 
to captives. So this is one kind of person. Proclaim liberty to captives. These are the innocent who have been taken by force. So these are people who had the the effects of other people's sin have devastated their life. They were innocent, they did nothing. So these are those, for example, who have been physically or sexually abused as children. You didn't bring that on yourself. You were innocent. Somebody else's sin impacted you and it wrecked your heart. And and we ministered to many who have had that happen to them. Those are captives. We bring good news that Jesus can restore those wounds and he can restore the years that the locusts have eaten in your life. And the God of justice will see to it that justice prevails. You don't have to exact revenge. You don't have to carry a spirit of bitterness or vengeance on you any longer. You can be free from that thing and have life and that more abundantly all out in front of you. And you don't have to live with the baggage of somebody else's sin for the rest of your life. We bring that good news, but we also bring good news and freedom to prisoners. Now sometimes prisoners in the scriptures can mean those who are POWs. They were at war and they got taken away, but it can also refer to those who were in prison because they broke the law. Anybody here not break the law ever? I'm not talking about the law of America or Pennsylvania. I mean the law of God. You better not raise your hand or I'm really gonna start preaching. Then nobody, nobody is righteous, not a one. There's nobody who hasn't transgressed, which means thinking in your heart about disobeying God and then acting on that. Every one of us were prisoners at some point. Captive because of our own choices and our own activities. Guess what? The good news doesn't exclude those who got in there. Our good news isn't you made your bed, now you gotta lie in it. That's not good news at all. Now, Parents, I'm not saying we don't train our kids, all right? There is still training, there is still discipline. Another message for another day, I'm not even gonna bother to take the time to balance it. Point is our message is indiscriminate. We don't look at somebody and say, well, you're just reaping what you sowed, so I don't have any good news for you. No, I got good news for you. You can get out from under that shame right now and have a new life. Even if you still got 10 to life of time left to do in prison, I don't even think that's a real thing. But even if you got more years, you can have freedom even with bars in front of you. I love how Paul, standing before, I think it was Festus, he was standing before Festus, and he, and he was talking to the, uh, one of the Herods, I forget which one, which Herod it was at the time. And, and Herod was just about, like, he said, you almost will make me a Christian. And Paul looks around the room. He's bound in chains and he's on death row. And he looks at Festus and he goes, oh, I wish that everybody here was just like me. Well, I mean, except for these chains and all. (laughs) It's just a great moment. You could be a prisoner in human chains and be the freest person on the planet. That's good news. Really good news. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Favorable year is a phrase that is used to describe the year of Jubilee, which is one of the most amazing things in the law of Moses. And, And much to my chagrin, when I studied it out years ago, I found there's no, not, not a single story in any of the historic books about the year of Jubilee being celebrated. No testimonies about what happened during that year. Every 50th year, every slave was to be set free. Everybody was to return to their home property. Given in the days of Joshua, the land goes back to your family. So if you fell into debt, somebody either by their decisions or a widow, you know, there was nobody to tend the land, you had to sell it, you get it back. Everything's reset, it's like a 50 year reset button. Poof. I still think God does that in the economy of the world. Um, nope, 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 pull it back. Reset button where everything gets restored. I can't wait for that to actually happen in full again, but it explains a lot of economic cycles. Stop. <laughs> the year of Jubilee, the favorable year of the Lord means your debt's canceled right now. Whatever you are working hard in your penance, Whatever it is that you're doing to punish yourself for your sins right now, I'm bringing good news to you right now. You can stop that. It was all laid on a cross. That everything that you're trying to repay right now, it was crucified in Christ. He drank the cup, he took it on himself, and he crucified it already, and he said, it's finished. He didn't say, I got 90% of your debt covered. Just pay 100 a month, and it'll be paid off in five generations. He said, no, paid in full. It's done. 
We've got good news, it's Jubilee. He's gonna give you back everything that you lost. It may not look like what you think it's gonna look like, but he's gonna restore to you everything the enemy stole. Just watch him work now, now for the rest of your life and on into eternity. Good news. Is that good news? That's really good news. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now there's some that get very excited about that and you'll make me nervous. People who get excited about the wrath of God make me nervous because I'm absolutely theologically convinced it was all poured out on the cross. There's no wrath of God to be poured out anymore. Now that's not that he doesn't rule the nations with rods of iron. That's not that he'll leave the guilty unpunished. That doesn't mean, and this explains all the wars that have happened for 2,000 years. As heaven moves and clears the deck of all those who are oppressing, all those who are murdering, all those who are doing their thing, going in these crazy rages that God will say, enough, and clear the decks. But his wrath, meaning I'm angry right now and I'm gonna pour out, that, that was all on Christ on the cross. The day of vengeance of our God is against the demonic forces who held captive and imprisoned you. Now, is there collateral damage? Look, we're gonna see this all over the news in the next few days and weeks, right? As Israel now moves into Gaza, we're gonna read the headlines, we're gonna read the stories about innocent civilians who got hurt and killed because they were there when the bomb dropped. We call that collateral damage. That's a really, I don't know, a flippant way of kind of putting it. These are human lives we're talking about. but. There is collateral damage. When God goes to war against the demonic forces, those who side with them, and please don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Palestinians are all Hamas. Don't just pretend I didn't use that as an example. I'm saying that there are people who partner with forces of darkness and are stubborn. God gives opportunity to repent, to get away, get off that ship. Don't hang out with those people. But when his judgment comes and he says, okay, enough, I'm not letting one more innocent life die as a result of your self-serving narcissistic craziness. That, that when you hang out with them, yeah, humans do get hurt in the process when they partner with evil. But we just need to understand, the lake of fire was made for the devil and his angels, not for people. The only people who end up in the lake of fire are the ones who have clung to those demons for which that lake of fire was created. Does that make sense? There you go. That was a whole theology of hell, full seminary class. That's two seminary classes in one day. You just got right there. That's the purpose of hell. He did not create it for us. It was created for the devil and his angels. Jesus said it in the parable of the sheep and the goats. So that's the day of vengeance of our God. It's amazing because when Peter quotes this in his famous sermon, he's pouring it out. I mean, he's getting in the face of the crowd that crucified Jesus, and, he's, and he quotes out of this passage, and he stops at the day of uh, this is the, uh, the year of favor, and he doesn't say in the year of vengeance, because it wasn't that time yet. What do we do? We comfort those who mourn, those who have awakened to the grief, the, the, the fact that mourning, mourning is the physical act of a heart that's grieving. So you can grieve without mourning, which is a dangerous thing to do. Holding on to grief and not giving it an outlet, which is mourning, will harm you. So I urge you, have a good cry. I mean, I don't wanna go deep into that now, but, but this is, grief means I lost something I love, and the more you loved it and the more important it was to you, the deeper the grief. Mourning is the active expression of grief to pour it out before it becomes bitter waters in our heart. So the good news to, is that those who are mourning, what are they mourning? Maybe they lost something, but mainly what, in context, what Jesus is talking to are people who have realized, I've made a mess of my life. I am in a place right now where like nothing is going right, where everything it seems I put my hands to, everything that I tried, it just all comes to nothing. And the good news that we bring is comfort from the Lord. Hey, he knows how to rebuild waste places. He has the blueprints for that house that got destroyed and he knows how to rebuild it and he'll use you and you wait and see what he's gonna do when he finishes making your house over again. That's the comfort that we bring to those who have awakened to the fact. This is why sometimes, and, and more about this when we talk about sharing the message of evangelism, sometimes it's necessary to awaken people to the bad news. Because you know there are a lot of us who just live our lives whistling past the graveyard and especially in the comfortable West that we live in, it's easy to just kind of go through the motions of life and be very comfortable. 
I mean, I, I wish every American could travel with us to Liberia and just spend a couple of weeks there and just see this is what it could look like. If, you had, if your philosophy had its way, here's what the whole world would look like again. This is what it all looked like when Jesus arrived on the scene. And now look at what we've got as a result of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven for 2,000 years. But mourning means I've been awakened to a sense of what I've lost. We got good news for people like that. To grant those who mourn in Zion, this is an interesting phrase, and I'm gonna land this plane quickly so we can break bread together before we go to our fellowship. To grant is a, it's a rough English translation. What, what this literally means is to place the mourning ones in the city of God. To place them, and, and some uh, translations have that, to meaning to take those who are mourning and put them in the city of God. You've been living in this place of mourning. You've been living at Mara, the place of mourning, the place of bitterness for a long time. You've been living in the valley of Baca, as Psalm 84 puts it, the valley of weeping for a long time. Let's not live there anymore. Let's not live going about moaning and sighing for the rest of your life about all the things you've done and all the things you've lost and all the things that you've gone wrong. I got a better place for you. It's called the city of God. It's a bright city set on a hill. There are songs of joy. There are shouts of joy and victory in that place and you'll have an awesome life in that place. You're gonna love that city when you get there. Everything's gonna be made new and oh man, you're gonna have the best neighbors you ever had. That's the kingdom that we live in. That's the city that we are. So it's taking the morning. The, the anointing is on us to bring people from that trap of always grieving, always mourning. Yeah, and yeah, I, I bet some of you can even think of people right now. Every time you talk to them and you ask them, how's it going? It's gonna be this whole list of everything that's wrong in life. And it's usually the same things. Like they, they don't even remember. It's almost like rewind, play. Rewind, play, and it's the same sob story over and over again. The Lord's gonna give you grace to hear it for the umpteenth time. Then he's gonna give you an anointing to help them get from that place to the city of Zion, to the place where God dwells, the mountain of God, where it's righteousness, peace, and joy forever. That's good news giving them a garland instead of ashes, so freedom from the shame and the pain of those griefs. Meaning, you know, in ancient times, they throw ashes on themselves as a sign to the world. I'm grieving right now. I want you all to know something terrible happened to me. And they threw ashes on themselves. Boy, am I glad I didn't grow up in that tradition. <laughs> Worst thing I ever got was a little cross on my forehead of ashes on Ash Wednesday, and that's about. But imagine covering yourself in ashes to make sure everybody knows I'm grieving don't try to cheer me, I'm inconsolable. That's what ashes were for. And, and God is saying, I see you in your grief and I wanna take those ashes and I'm gonna wipe you clean and instead, I'm gonna dress you like a bride about to go to her wedding. That's what garlands were mainly used for. I'm gonna give, it's like a crown of flowers or whatever vines that they, they would find and use for that. I'm gonna make you beautiful instead. I'm gonna get you free and out from that cycle of grief and mourning. I'm gonna get those ashes off of you so that you stop driving your friends crazy and you instead come into this place of love and peace and joy because that's what I've got for you. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, which is the same thing instead of always be in, being in mourning, I'm gonna anoint you with the oil of joy. I'm gonna pour it out. I'm not gonna fix everything. I'm not gonna you know, make you, uh, I'll make you whole eventually on the inside, but I'm gonna pour this out on you right now because you're so desperate. And the garment of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. In other words, an opening of the eyes to gratitude and praise in the place of the weariness that comes. You ever, you know, after you're mourning for a while, you know that tired you feel after you've had a long, hard cry? Do you? Yes. Maybe some of you need to experience it. Maybe that, that's the beginning. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, not blessed are those who grieve. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Pour all that out, and the comforter comes, and he refills with an amazing wave of joy. It's an amazing, awesome, glorious process. But he's saying, I'm gonna give you praise now. In the middle of your storm, in the middle of your sorrow, I'm gonna anoint, I'm gonna give you good news to help you praise even in the middle of your weariness and defeat. 
and they'll be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Here's what's gonna happen. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. So here's what's, once they're free, the world becomes Eden all over again. This is the plan since the garden is to restore paradise. How does it happen? One by one, we bring good news to the poor, the afflicted, the depressed, all of the people we just looked at. We bring good news there, and then they together, because we're all the they too, right? It's not just us and them, we are the they. Every one of us were those ones that needed all of that good news so that we would be the rebuilders of ruins and devastations that have been generations long in that process. So bringing good news involves all the ministries of Jesus, meeting people where they are in their current state of being and bringing his anointing to set them free, to make, help them become something brand new. Bringing good news, which means not just preaching it, also involves a change of life. So there ought to be some impact of our words. We're aiming not just, well, I shared the gospel, check, did my good deed for the day, good luck, hope you do. There, there is like a, a, we, a, we water it with prayer, we water it with the love with which we present it, and we water it with follow-up, and we water it by bringing the anointing to be on the words that we speak. That's what happens when Christ is in it. So more on that next week. Now what I'm gonna invite you to do, I'm gonna break bread here. And um, I'm gonna ask you to get into groups of three to five. Come and grab a chunk of bread to pass around. Uh, the juice in the front and in the back for each of you to gather for communion. And what I'm gonna invite you to do is take your bread and one by one go around the circle, hand it to one person at a time and then extend your hands to them and speak, Isaiah, can you go to the next slide for me? Speak this scripture over them. This is Isaiah 61. I'd like you to speak this over them, but change the word from the spirit of the Lord's upon me. Say the spirit of the Lord God's upon you and commission one another with this. Remind one another and commission one another with this. Take this body and this blood that was shed and apply it. This is the anointed one. This is how we came into this thing and send one another. We are the body of Christ, so stir one another up to love and to good works. And if you're at home, the stream is gonna go out right now. Just grab some bread and juice. I should have warned you I was gonna do this earlier and uh, speak it over yourself. So turn it back to the first person. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news. And go from this place, go into life, ready to go and bring good news wherever you go. Father, I pray that there will be an anointing on this time, that you'll fill the words of your sons and daughters' mouths with power, that the words that we speak won't be empty, but they'll be filled with life, they'll be filled with joy, they'll be filled with power to see salvation and the gospel of the kingdom of heaven come everywhere we go. Amen. Amen. So groups of three to five, come forward and get your bread from me and uh, meet anywhere you like around in the room.